Chapter 27 of the Life of St. Teresa of Jesus of the Order of Our Lady of Carmel. This is a Discerning Hearts recording read by Chris McGregor. The Life of St. Teresa of Jesus of the Order of Our Lady of Carmel. Written by herself and translated from the Spanish by David Lewis. I now resume the story of my life. I was in great pain and distress, and many prayers, as I said, were made on my behalf, that our Lord would lead me by another and a safer way, for this, they told me, was so suspicious. The truth is that, though I was praying to God for this, and wished I had a desire for another way, yet when I saw the progress I was making, I was unable to really desire a change. Though I always prayed for it, excepting on those occasions when I was extremely cast down by what people said to me and by the fears with which they filled me. I felt as though I was wholly changed. I could do nothing but put myself in the hands of God. He knew what was expedient for me. Let him do with me according to his will in all things. I saw that by this way I was directed heavenwards and that formerly I was going down to hell. I could not force myself to desire a change, nor believe that I was under the influence of Satan, though I was doing all I could to believe the one and to desire the other. It was not my power to do so. I offered up all my actions, if there should be any good in them, for this end. I had recourse to the saints for whom I had a devotion that they might deliver me from the evil one. I made novenas. I commended myself to St. Helleron, to the angel St. Michael, to whom I recently became devout, for this purpose. And many other saints I importuned, that our Lord might show me the way. I mean that they might obtain this for me from his majesty. At the end of two years spent in prayer by myself and others for this end, namely that our Lord would either lead me by another way or show the truth of this, for now the locutions of our Lord was extremely frequent. This happened to me. I was in prayer one day. It was the feast of the glorious St. Peter, when I saw Christ close by me, or to speak more correctly, felt him. For I saw nothing with the eyes of the body, nothing with the eyes of the soul. He seemed to me to be close beside me, and I saw, too, as I believe, that it was he who was speaking to me. As I was utterly ignorant that such a vision was possible, I was extremely afraid at first, and did nothing but weep. However, when he spoke to me, but one word to reassure me, I recovered myself, and was, as usual, calm and comforted, without any fear whatever. Jesus Christ seemed to be by my side continually, and, as the vision was not imaginary, I saw no form. But I had a most distinct feeling that he was always on my right hand, a witness of all I did, and never at any time, if I was but slightly recollected or not too much distracted, could I be ignorant of his near presence. I went at once to my confessor, in great distress, to tell him of it. He asked in what form I saw our Lord. I told him I saw no form. He then said, 
How did you know that it was Christ? I replied that I did not know how I knew it, but I could not help knowing that he was close beside me, that I saw him distinctly and felt his presence, that the recollectedness of my soul was deeper in the prayer of quiet and more continuous. The effects thereof were very different from what I hitherto experienced, and that it was most certain. I could only make comparisons in order to explain myself, and certainly there are no comparisons, in my opinion, by which visions of this kind can be described. Afterwards, I learned from Friar Peter of Alicantara, a holy man of great spirituality, of whom I shall speak by and by, and from others of great learning, that this vision was of the highest order, and one with which Satan can least interfere, and therefore there are no words whereby to explain. At least none of us women who know so little. Learned men can explain it better. For if I say that I see him neither with the eyes of the body nor with those of the soul, because it was not an imaginary vision, how is it that I can understand and maintain that he stands beside me and be more certain of it than if I saw him? If it be supposed that it is as if a person were blind or in the dark and therefore unable to see another who is close to him, the comparison is not exact. There is certain likelihood about it, however, but not much, because other senses tell him who is blind of that presence. He hears the other speak or move, or he touches him. But in these visions, there is nothing like this. The darkness is not felt, only he renders himself present to the soul by a certain knowledge of himself, which is more clear than the sun. I do not mean that we now see either a sun or any brightness, only that there is a light not seen, which illumines the understanding so that the soul may have the fruition of so great a good. This vision brings with it great blessings. It is not like that presence of God which is frequently felt, particularly by those who have attained to the prayer of union and of quiet, when we seem at the very commencement of our prayer to find him with whom we would converse, and when we seem to feel that he hears us by the effects and the spiritual impressions of great love and faith of which we are then conscious, as well as by the good resolutions accompanied by sweetness which we then make. This is a great grace from God, and let him to whom he has given it esteem it much because it is a very high degree of prayer. But it is not vision. God is understood to be present there by the effects he works in the soul. That is the way his majesty makes his presence felt. But here, in this vision, it is seen clearly that Jesus Christ is present, the Son of the Virgin, in the prayer of union and of quiet, certain inflowings of the Godhead are present. But in the vision, the sacred humanity also, together with them, is pleased to be our visible companion and to do us good. My confessor next asked me, who told me it was Jesus Christ? I replied that he 
often told me so himself. But even before he told me so, there was an impression on my understanding that it was he. And before this, he used to tell me so, and I saw him not. If a person whom I had never seen, but of whom I had heard, came to speak to me, and I were blind or in the dark, and told me who he was, I should believe him. But I could not so confidently affirm that he was that person as I might do if I had seen him. But in this vision, I could do so, because so clear a knowledge is impressed on the soul that all doubt seems impossible, though he is not seen. Our Lord wills that this knowledge be so graven on the understanding that we can no more question his presence than we can question that which we see with our eyes. Not so much even, for very often there arises a suspicion that we have imagined things we think we see. But here, though there may be a suspicion in the first instant, there remains a certainty so great that the doubt has no force whatever. So also it is when God teaches the soul in another way and speaks to it without speaking in the way I have described. There is so much of heaven in this language that it cannot well be understood on earth, though we may desire ever so much to explain it, for our Lord will not teach it experimentally. Our Lord impresses in the innermost soul that which he wills that soul to understand. And he manifests it there without images or formal words after the manner of the vision I am speaking of. Consider well this in which God works in order that the soul may understand what he means, his great truths and mysteries. For very often what I understand when our Lord explains to me the vision, which it is his majesty's pleasure to set before me, is after this manner. And it seems to me that this is a state with which the devil can least interfere for these reasons. But if these reasons are not good, I must be under a delusion. The vision and the language are matters of such pure spirituality that there is no toil of the faculties or of the senses out of which, so seems to me, the devil can derive any advantage. It is only at intervals, and for an instant, that this occurs. For generally, so I think, the senses are not taken away, and the faculties are not suspended. They preserve their ordinary state. It is not always so in contemplation. On the contrary, it is very rarely so. But when it is so, I say that we do nothing whatever ourselves. No work of ours is then possible. All that is done is apparently the work of our Lord. It is as if food had been received into the stomach which had not first been eaten, and without our knowing how it entered. But we do know well that it is there, though we know not its nature, nor who it was that placed it there. In this vision, I know who placed it, but I do not know how he did it. I neither saw it nor felt it. 
I never had any inclination to desire it, and I never knew before that such a thing was possible. In the locutions of which I spoke before, God makes the understanding attentive, though it may be painful to understand what is said. Then the soul seems to have other ears wherewith it hears, and he forces it to listen, and will not let it be distracted. The soul is like a person whose hearing was good, and who has not suffered to stop his ears, while people standing close beside him speak to him with a loud voice. He may be unwilling to hear it, yet hear he must. Such a person contributes something of his own, for he attends to what is said to him. But here, there is nothing of the kind. Even that little, which is nothing more than the bare act of listening, which is granted to it in the other case, is now out of its power. It finds its food prepared and eaten. It has nothing more to do but to enjoy it. It is as if one, without ever learning, without taking the pains even to learn to read, and without studying any subject whatever, should find himself in possession of all knowledge, not knowing how or whence it came to him, seeing that he had never taken the trouble even to learn the alphabet. This last comparison seems to me to throw some light on this heavenly gift, for the soul finds itself learned in a moment and the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity so clearly revealed to it, together with the other most deep doctrines, that there is no theologian in the world with whom it would hesitate to dispute for the truth of these matters. It is impossible to describe the surprise of the soul when it finds that one of these graces is enough to change it utterly and make it love nothing but him who without waiting for anything itself might do, renders it fit for blessings so high, communicates to it his secrets, and treats it with so much affection and love. Some of the graces he bestows are liable to suspicion because they are so marvelous and given to one who has deserved them so little. Incredible, too, without a most lively faith. I intend, therefore, to mention very few of those graces which our Lord has wrought in me, if I should not be ordered otherwise. But there are certain visions of which I shall speak, an account of which may be of some service. In doing so, I shall either dispel his fears to whom our Lord sends them, and who, as I used to do, think them impossible, or I shall explain the way or the road by which our Lord has led me. And that is what I have been commanded to describe. Now, going back to speak of this way of understanding, what it seems to me to be is this. It is our Lord's will in every way that the soul should have some knowledge of what passes in heaven. And I think, as the blessed there, without speech, understand one another. I never knew this for certain till our Lord of his goodness made me see it. He showed it to me in a trance. So, is it here? God and the soul 
understand one another, merely because His Majesty so wills it, without the help of other means, to express the love there is between them. In the same way on earth, two persons of sound sense, if they love each other much, can even, without any signs, understand one another only by their looks. It must be so here, though we do not see how, as these two lovers earnestly regard each other. The bridegroom says to the bride in the canticle, So I believe I have heard that it is spoken of there. O marvelous goodness of God, and that thou permittest eyes which have looked upon so much evil as those of my soul to look upon thee. May they never accustom themselves, after looking on thee, to look upon vile things again. And may they have pleasure in nothing but in thee, O Lord. O ingratitude of men, how far will it go? I know by experience that what I am saying is true, and that all we can say is exceedingly little when we consider what thou doest to the soul which thou hast led to such a state as this. O souls, you have begun to pray, and you who possess the true faith, what can you be in search of, even in this life, let alone that which is forever, that is comparable to the least of these graces? Consider, and it is true, that God gives himself to those who give up everything for him. God is not an acceptor of persons. He loves all. There is no excuse for anyone, however wicked he may be, seeing that he hath thus dealt with me, raising me to the state I am in. Consider that what that what I am saying is not even an iota of what may be said. I say only that which is necessary to show the kind of vision and of the grace which God bestows on the soul. For that cannot be told which it feels when our Lord admits it to the understanding of his secrets and of his mighty works. The joy of this is so far above all conceivable joys that it may well make us loathe all the joys of earth, for they are but dross, and it is an odious thing to make them enter into the comparison, even if we might have them forever. Those which our Lord gives what are they? One drop only of the waters of the overflowing river which he is reserving for us. It is a shame, and in truth I am ashamed of myself. If shame could have a place in heaven, I should certainly be the most ashamed there. Why do we seek blessings and joys so great, bliss without end, and all at the cost of our good Jesus? Shall we not at least weep with the daughters of Jerusalem if we do not help to carry his cross with a Cyrenian? Is it by pleasure and idle amusements that we can attain to the fruition of what he purchased with so much blood? It is impossible. Can we think that we can, by preserving our honor, which is vanity, recompense him for the sufferings he endured, that we might reign with him forever? This is not the way. We are going by the wrong road utterly 
and we shall never arrive there. You, my Father, must lift up your voice and utter these truths aloud, seeing that God has taken from me the power of doing it. I should like to utter them to myself forever. I listened to them myself and came to the knowledge of God so late, as will appear by what I have written, that I am ashamed of myself when I speak of this, and so I should like to be silent. Of one thing, however, I will speak, and I think of it now and then. May it be the good pleasure of our Lord to bring me on, so that I may have the fruition of it. What will be the accidental glory and the joy of the blessed who have entered on it when they see that, though they were late, yet they left nothing undone which it was possible for them to do for God, who kept nothing back they could give him, and who gave what they gave in every way they could, according to their strength and their measure. They who had more gave more. How rich will he be who gave up all his riches for Christ? How honorable will he be who, for his sake, sought no honors whatever, but rather took pleasure in seeing himself abased? How wise he will be who rejoiced when men accounted him as mad. They did so of wisdom itself. How few there are of this kind now, because of our sins. Now, indeed, they are all gone whom people regarded as mad, because they saw them perform heroic acts as true lovers of Christ. O world, world, how thou art gaining credit because they are few who knew thee. But do we suppose that God is better pleased when men account us wise and discreet persons? We think forthwith that there is but little edification given when people do not go about, every one in his degree, with great gravity in a dignified way. Even the friar, the ecclesiastic, the nun, if they wear old and patched garments, we think it a novelty and a scandal to the weak. And even if they are very recollected and given to prayer, such is the state of the world, and so forgotten are matters of perfection and those grand impetuosities of the saints. More mischief, I think, is done in this way than by any scandal that might arise if the religious showed in their actions, as they proclaim it in words, that the world is to be held in contempt. Out of scandals such as this, our Lord obtains great fruit. If some people took scandal, others are filled with remorse. Anyhow, we should have before us some likeness of that which our Lord and his apostles endured, for we have need of it now more than ever. And... What an excellent likeness in the person of the blessed friar, Peter of Alcantara, God has just taken from us. The world cannot bear such perfection now. It is said that men's health is grown feebler and that we are not now in those former times. But this holy man lived in our day. He had a spirit strong as those of another age, and so he trampled on the world. If men 
Do not go about barefooted, nor undergo sharp penances as he did. There are many ways, as I have said before, of trampling on the world, and our Lord teaches them when he finds the necessary courage. How great was the courage with which his majesty filled the scene I am speaking of. He did penance, oh, how sharp it was, for seventy-four years, as all men know. I should like to speak of it, for I know it to be all true. He spoke of it to me and to another person, from whom he kept few or no secrets. As for me, it was the affection he bore me that led him to speak, for it was our Lord's will that he should undertake my defense and encourage me at a time when I was in great straits, as I said before, and shall speak of again. He told me, I think, that for forty years he slept but an hour and a half out of the twenty-four, and that the most laborious penance he underwent when he began was this of overcoming sleep. For that purpose he was either kneeling or standing. When he slept, he sat down, his head resting against a piece of wood driven into the wall. Lie down he could not, if he wished it, for his cell, as everyone knows, was only four feet and a half in length. In all these years, he never covered his head with his hood, even when the sun was hottest or the rain heaviest. He never covered his feet. The only garment he wore was made of sackcloth, and that was tight as it could be, with nothing between it and his flesh. Over this, he wore a cloak of the same stuff. He told me that, in the severe cold, he used to take off his cloak and open the door and the window of his cell, in order that when he put his cloak on again, after shutting the door and the window, he might give some satisfaction to his body and the pleasure it might have of the increased warmth. His ordinary practice was to eat but once in three days. He said to me, Why are you so astonished at it? It is very possible for anyone who is used to it. One of his companions told me that he would be occasionally eight days without eating. That must have been when he was in prayer, for he was subject to trances and to the impetuosities of the love of God, of which I was once a witness myself. His poverty was extreme, and his mortification from his youth was such as, so he told me, that he was three years in one of the houses of his order without knowing how to distinguish one friar from another, otherwise than by the voice, for he never raised his eyes. And so when he was obliged to go from one part of the house to the other, he never knew the way unless he followed the friars. His journeys also were made in the same way. For many years, he never saw a woman's face. He told me that it was nothing to him whether he saw it or not. But he was an aged man when I made his acquaintance, and his weakness was so great that he seemed like nothing else but the roots of trees. With all his sanctity, he was very agreeable, though his words were few, unless when he asked questions. He was very pleasant to speak to for he had a most clear understanding. Many other things I should like to say of him, if I were not afraid, my father, that you will say, why does she meddle here? 
and it is in that fear I have written this. So I leave the subject only saying that his last end was like his life, preaching to and exhorting his brethren. When he saw that the end was coming, he repeated the psalm, I rejoiced at the things that were said to me. And then, kneeling down, he died. Since then, it has pleased our Lord that I should find more help from him than during his life. He advises me in many matters. I have often seen him in great glory. The first time he appeared to me, he said, O oh, blessed penance, which has merited so great reward, and other things. A year before his death, he appeared to me, being then far away. I knew he was about to die, and so I sent him word to that effect when he was some leagues from here. When he died, he appeared to me, and he said that he was going to his rest. I did not believe it. I spoke of it to some persons. And within eight days came the news that he was dead. Or to speak more correctly, he had begun to live forevermore. Behold, here then, how that life of sharp penance is perfected in such great glory. And now he is a greater comfort to me, I do believe, than he was on earth. Our Lord sent to me on one occasion that persons could not ask him anything in his name and he not hear them. I have recommended many things to him that he was to ask of our Lord, and I have seen my petitions granted. God be blessed forever. Amen. But how I have been talking in order to stir you up never to esteem anything in this life, as if you did not know this, or as if you were not resolved to leave everything and had already done it. I see so much going wrong in the world that though my speaking of it is of no other use than to weary me by writing of it, it is of some relief to me that all I am saying makes against myself. Our Lord, forgive me all that I do amiss herein, and you too, my Father, for wearying you to no purpose. It seems as if I would make you do penance for my sins herein. <laughs>